Before we start the Descendants podcast, I first wish to acknowledge the untimely passing of co-star Cameron Boyce. This tragedy occurred after we recorded this podcast, so I reached out to Josie McGibbon, one of today's guests and the co-creator of the franchise, for a few words about her beloved Cameron. In the words of Josie, I am forever grateful that Cameron was our Carlos in our saga about bringing love and hope and unity to the world. He certainly walked that walk. Except with him, it looked like soaring. His family has established a charity to continue Cameron's philanthropic passions, the Cameron Boyce Foundation. I myself am amazed at what this young man was able to accomplish in his 20 short years on this earth. He brought a lot of joy to my family, and he most certainly lived by the ideal which I choose to, which is to choose kind. I encourage any of you who are in a position to give to consider the Cameron Boyce Foundation. Thank you, and enjoy the show. So usually you go through various steps, especially with a movie. You have a beat sheet, which is really like beat by beat, what's going to happen. Then you go into a longer, can be a 20-page document for a movie that outlines everything that's going to happen. Um, So you really know what you're getting. Well, we just skipped all that and said, go write a movie. And I can safely say that when that draft got turned in, it is to this day the only time I'd ever shown somebody at a top of a network the first draft of something. And it, to this day, is still the best first draft of anything I've ever read. Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. Seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again, and enjoy the show. Okay, we are rolling. Here we are at uh, Josanne McGibbon's beautiful home in Westwood, West LA, Rancho Park area. I won't give the exact address so oh, that good idea. Yeah, so <laughs> that the stalkers don't show up. But it is close to the Apple Pan for all you hamburger fans out there. Um, and she's on my left, and on my right is uh, Corey Marsh, the EVP of Wonderland Sound and Vision. Uh, Corey, long history with both of these guests. Corey actually was my intern uh, a couple moons ago. And I used to drive Josie's daughter home from school. So this one is really a full circle show for me, and I believe also for the two of you. Yes. And by the way, you weren't an adult when you were driving my daughter home from school. (laughs) That is a great point. Thank you. (laughs) Do not call the FBI. She's 35 and picking up my daughter from school. (laughs) (laughs) She's not creepy at all. Yeah. 17-year-old. Yeah. in In a... broken down car that I think only went about 25 miles an hour. So we were very safe perfect. the whole time. Yeah, yeah exactly. And the two of you also share a great history uh, that I don't know if you want oh, to elaborate. Great, the way that I, I started. It was great. I was Josie's assistant, Josie and her writing partner, Sarah Perriott. And uh, boy, I don't feel like I did a lot of assistant work while I was there. He was the best. I did we didn't really. One. We didn't need an assistant because no, we never had one and didn't know what we needed one for. But it was when we were show running the Starter Wife, the series, and I don't know. It felt like we answered our own phones, and 
I fixed I a know. lot of like Bluetooth devices. Josie would bring in like record players. She just find <laughs> electronics true. that didn't work in her house and bring it in and be like, I can't get this to work. And 30 seconds later, it would work. She really thought it would take up my entire day. And I feel like she was doing that so that she felt like she was giving me some busy work, but it just never happened. It, but, but it was quality of life. You, you made it more fun. Oh, it's so nice. It was fun. My favorite story from Star Wars, which I don't think I've ever told you this, was maybe it was like the last episode. You're like, hey, Corey, do you have a script? And at the time, I thought I was going to become a sitcom writer. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And I gave her, I don't know if you remember this, it was a Scrubs spec script. And, you know, when you give writers a script, usually they either don't read it or it takes them a very long time unless you remind them. Next day, both her and Sarah come and be like, we love that script. Oh my god, it's so good. Why did you bring that in? And like, I think the next day, the, show, the next day after that, the show got canceled. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I was finally going to get stabbed on a show. Right. And then after that, I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I don't right. want to be a writer. Actually, you know, it would have been great if it turned out we knew it was going to be canceled. We said, I'll tell them it's great. <laughs> which, by the way, <laughs> which, by the way, you probably did. Do. No, we did not. We did not. Oh, but because you were so nice to him, you had to keep him in your life. Well, when Corey got the job at the Disney Channel, um, you know, you were in touch with us and you said, oh man, I'd love to get you over. And then he did call and he said, okay, this is, this is special. He said, for the first time, the network is talking about doing something, a series, maybe a movie, we're not sure, having to do with uh, the heritage characters. So this is, this is something I think is going to have some heat to it. And the concept was uh, that it would be the children of the heritage villains and the heritage characters are the one from the classic animation movies like you know 101 dalmatians and sleeping beauty etc and uh and and so the idea was some maybe a high school where the kids of the villains go and he said does that interest you and and honestly that sounded like fun to us so that's when we said let's noodle on that and and he said really pretty much run with it any way you want. You know, you would be a get for them and I would look good and, you know, and he said, I think this would be fun. So how many emails did you send that to people? Did you send that email to? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, the first 20 didn't even respond to me. (laughs) But we did the next day. (laughs) That's one thing Sarah and I are good at. (laughs) It's good. It worked out. So always respond to my emails, I guess. So do you know, was obviously, you know, the light bulb for this relationship happened even before the descendants came around but what was do you remember the first sort of spark to where that idea came from or i think i was in like a flip book in my boss nikki reed's office and there was something there that had something with like the the characters like the disney ip and i was like flipping through it and there were like younger versions of these disney characters in it and her and i were just riffing on it and out came a very very early version of what Descendants could be when, before I pitched it to Josie and Sarah saying, what if it was like, the, I think you, the first time I'd heard the word progeny, which is strange, I'm clearly not as educated as you, but she pitched it as, oh, you mean the progeny of the Disney villains? I was like, I'm going to go look up that word, but yes. <laughs> and, had I, and, and right, and yet it wasn't called progeny, right? <laughs> the, well, when, they, when they decided the title would be Descendants, I remember thinking, what, how many five-year-olds know the word Descendants? And it's like, oh, they will learn the word Descendants. descendants. Right, and how many times has it been confused with the uh, George Clooney movie? Oh, I know. I was not long ago go you know met some people and and someone said about me she wrote descendants and and someone said i love that that's such a that's such a touching film i said then you're not talking about mine <laughs> it was just like you know i'm yeah no one calls it a film first of all oh, there you go. But yeah, right it was, it was, 
Okay, so Corey makes the outreach. You get back to him. Yeah. You're excited to yeah, hear from him. we're intrigued. Oh, right. yeah, we always right. love hearing right. from Corey. But you're intrigued I mean, by but, the... But no, it sounds like a fun thing. And so basically, uh, I guess we maybe had... I don't even think we had a general meeting. I think it was your, your saying, see, you know, play with it. And so then we kind of came up with... I mean, it, it was so enormous. How do you even figure it out? But we came up with the idea of how do all of these fairy tale characters know each other, especially these people who have died, you know, and the villains who have all died in their movies. You know, what is the world? And then we said, what if instead of a, a school where all the villain kids go, it's it's a pilot program and there's a good world and, and, there, and we created Isle of the Lost and, you know, what if for kids uh, you know who have these horrific backgrounds come over here and 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 disney channel was enthusiastic and of course you know it's easy now to see or if you know like well of course it makes all the sense in the world what they would have been like and what the kids were but on one hand we were thinking should all of the oridon kids be awful and all the villain kids are great or the other way or is it just good and bad kids everywhere and do they want to do ill what do they want you know i mean so and then, but then we cracked it and we were off to the races. And you had no idea you were, you know, writing an allegory for sort of the immigration issues. No, but we did have an, we knew what we were doing by, by number three and, 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 you know, which is now due to come out soon. And, and that was extremely conscious and it deals with immigration far more head on. Okay. So you're on your way. You come up with this concept. Corey's excited. The channel's excited. At what point did it seem real? Like, this was plausibly going to happen. I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of... It was a real strange bump in the road, if you remember. Like, so we started on the project together, and I was on the series side. So in development, when you're at Disney Channel, there's the series department and a movie department. And it got handed off from me to the movie department, as I recall. And this is in the early stages, before there was a script. And it's because we saw it more as a movie, as yeah. a one-off. And, and this is, I mean, you said 2011 was the email. The movie didn't come out until 2013. Yeah, so this so. maybe 2012-ish. So it, it, it got handed off to, I think at that time, there was a ton of turnover for various reasons. So it had to have gone through like six or seven different execs. And I think Sarah and Josie, and even on the Disney side, we were all like, uh, maybe this isn't going to work out. And I think I asked for it back. I said, well, just give us one shot with it. And I remember uh, I got on the phone with my colleague, Jonas Agin, who's still over at Disney Channel with Sarah and Josie. And I think it was maybe like a 20-minute call. And we were like, what do you guys want to do? Because it had had many, many different iterations. Yeah. And they pitched it. And we threw a couple notes out there. I would love to take great credit for it. But I did very little in, in um, shaping what ultimately became the big story that they came up with. And they went off, we're like, cool, go and write it, which you never do as an executive. You never just let someone go off and write something off of a 15-minute conversation with, I don't think there was even an outline. Am I crazy in saying that? There was nothing. Okay, so usually you go through various steps, especially with a movie. You have a beat sheet, which is really like beat by beat, what's going to happen. It's like two to three pages, just so you know it tracks. You know where the act-outs are. You, You can sort of track the emotion. You can track who the characters are. Then you go into a longer, can be a 20-page document for a movie that outlines everything that's going to happen. Um, so you really know what you're getting. Well, we just skipped all that and said, go write a movie. And I can safely say that when that draft got turned in, it is to this day the only time I'd ever shown somebody at a top of a network the first draft of something. And it, to this day, is still the best first draft of everything, anything I've ever read. I'm not just saying that because Josie's here, because it was 
like the bar was very high at Disney Channel on something that involved that kind of IP. As you can imagine, they protect their IP. It was really difficult to get the rights to use it because they were making all those adaptations of Maleficent. They were doing Aladdin. There were a lot. There were lots of different bigger feature movies that they were developing on the studio side that um, they wanted to protect. So they had every reason to say no to Descendants along the way. Um, so I just remember showing it to the head of, of Disney Channel, Gary Marsh, um, no relation. And like it, there was an immediate response of like, this is great. And that was the start of it. That was probably what, 2012, 2013? Yeah, and, and, and it was. It happened pretty fast. And, and uh, you know, and suddenly everyone was very excited. I would say even from that first draft, there was a feeling you certainly were saying, I think this is going to happen. And yeah. I think it could be big. And then when we got together and we were talking about directors, must have, I'm sure we turned in a second draft before that happened, but we were already sort of talking about it. And when Gary said, I think this, you know, my top choice would be Kenny Ortega. And it was just like, a, would he do a non-musical? Because it wasn't a musical. You know, and, and, oh my God. You know, once you talk about Kenny Ortega, it's just like, well, there's Kenny Ortega for this project and then there's everybody else and now no one wants to talk about anybody else, you know? Um, and then Kenny and Gary both tell the story about how Gary said, um, I told you I'd come back to you when I had something really special. Well, I think this is really special. And I will actually cut to another funny story about Kenny because I knew that... He had read it and was taking a meeting with them. And, you know, Sarah and I were so hopeful and so excited. And and the night before his meeting with the Disney Channel, I was at something with my husband, Robert, and it was, at, you know, Robert, who was a drama high school teacher. And, you know, and, and it was the Jerry Herman Award show at the, you know, it's a competition at the Pantages Theater where all the kids who've been in musicals are competing and who, what high school production, blah, blah, blah. And Kenny Ortega was one of the judges. I didn't even know what Kenny looked like. So I, first of all, you know, quick Google to so I could see, okay, so this is what he looks like. I then saw him in a crowd. I waited for people to walk away. And I went up and I introduced myself and I said, hi, I'm Josie McGiven. And my partner and I wrote, it was called All About Evil at the time. Um, you know, and he said, oh, I love that. I'm taking a meeting tomorrow. And I and I got down on my knees and I said, please, I said, please make our movie. And I said, and if they don't make the kind of deal that you want, I, Sarah and I are good for $100 <laughs> to sweeten the pot. So just know that. And he said, oh, I want to, he said, I want to make it. It just, you know, we just have to make sure we all want to make the same movie, and, et cetera. And and then and then it turned into and then he wanted a musical element and everyone went hell yeah if Kenny yeah. Ortega wants the musical you know songs and dances yeah did you ever pay him the hundred dollars no but I've joked about it in fact in different times when he's taken me out to meal I said you know I still kind of owe you yeah I don't think that hundred dollars is ever getting paid is it? <laughs> no well one thing that's very clear from from this story is how many places it could have just died. On oh, vine, for sure. Right? And I yeah. think that's so true with so many of these projects. I always tell people, it's so easy to say no. It's so hard to say yes. And you think about all the confluence events of events here. I mean, yeah. going back even to this sort of Hail Mary phone call, yeah. when Corey hung up the phone, going back to before you wrote the first draft, did you think, you know what? They're just giving us lip service. They're really not going to take this seriously with this draft it's been two well, years as Corey's saying when it looked like it was going to fold my memory of it was because we were suddenly we were going from 
among all these different executives, each of which, each of whom wanted something different. And Sarah and I called Corey and said, we thought we were going to be working with you. And it, it feels like this is now turning into sort of a, an X-Men movie, which wasn't our vision. You know, we, we had something more fun and, and lighter in mind. And Corey said, don't do, you know, so we were basically saying, I think this is, I think, I think it's time for us to, you know, graciously leave. And Corey, as I recall, said, do nothing, do nothing. And then came back, he said, okay, you'll be working with me and with my colleague. And then it was just so, then it was smooth. He trusted us and got the studio to trust us. But so few people, I feel like, are in a position, even if they are in a position, even have the courage to to say that or or their convictions. Because I think so often writers and producers and direct, you know, they're sort of, you know, happy to have the project, right? And how did you, you know, have the courage and the chutzpah to... It didn't feel like courage because it really, you know, most of what every writer writes and and sells doesn't get made. And so there, you know, this was something that wasn't going to be interesting or fun if it wasn't going to get made. And if there were so many, if there was so much confusion about what they were looking for and we didn't feel like we were creatively in tune with the latest executive we were put with, it, to us it was just like, oh, I, I see what this is. It's not going to get made. It's going to be aggravating. And, and we have other options, you know. So it, it, it was more like... Yeah, this is this is it's time to cut our losses, you know. And nice. we've tried to chase what each person we're speaking to is looking for and and it's getting further away from what we find interesting. We weren't doing it to make a mover to get results, but it but you know, it just so happened that Corey went and 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 I was impressed cuz several times during the process, you know, Corey uh, advocated for us in a really great way. So yeah, let's talk about this, Corey. Yeah. Let's talk about you as sort of the uh, you know the lifesaver here. You mentioned, Joseanne <laughs> jo- mentioned a few opportunities for this to have gone south. Yeah. Um, I, I think you alluded to the IP and just the value of that IP and Maleficent and all that. I mean, yeah. were there things, despite even how great it was, where it looked maybe kind of dire? Yeah, well, I think the part we skipped was they turned in a, that first draft that was amazing I think this was before the whole Kenny of it all. There was a gap of close to a year where it looked like it wasn't going to go. And it had nothing to do with the creative. Everyone loved the script. But then was when you're dealing with Disney and and I think... Maleficent, um, I think, was in production. Yeah. And I think at the time there was a lot of question of can you have parallel IP working at the same time? Can you have Maleficent, the Angelina Jolie version, and sort of the more comedic four quadrant version over here at the same time and it went back and forth for a very long time and i think i'm sure you guys felt it the the same way i did which was this thing might just go away and it was it was a terrible feeling inside one because i think i alluded to them that i thought it was going to go but also just from a personal level when you're a development exec you feel very close to the projects probably as close as, as Josie and Sarah felt to it, and they wrote it, but I felt very close. You know, I knew how rare it was to get to work with Disney IP, having been at Disney, even for that short period of time. I think I was there for maybe two years at that time. And I knew how difficult it was to get access to it. And I felt like if we could just crack this one movie, it would open the door to other opportunities within the company and things that I really wanted to do. Um, so 
it did eventually come back around, and I think that was to the credit of not me, but to the president of the hour, Gary Marsh, who went back to I think to Bob Iger a couple times and talked about why he was passionate about it and why he believed in the movie. And then to Bob's credit, he eventually said, if you believe in it, go with it. And that then, I think I remember the first meeting after that, we were sort of ready to go then, but there's a, a, a time period between when a script is delivered um, in, in the lead time, you need to make all the merchandise for a movie like this. So you knew that they needed like a year and a half from whatever point it was like a go. Remember the first meeting was they had logos of the Descendants logo and it was an entire room. I mean, 50 feet by 15 feet. And it was 6,000 Descendants logos bedazzled in every different color, like every different size. And I remember going through the first like five to 10 of them, there were maybe 20 people in the room that were marketing execs and higher level development execs. I remember just going and sitting down in a chair being like, well, this is not me. <laughs> this is not for me. I can't choose the purple sparkly one versus the, the green sparkly one that's size 12 font versus 14. And I heard people talking about how this wouldn't, this logo wouldn't show up on a toy because it would be too small. But if you made it a different color and a different font, it would. And I was like, wow, this clearly I got into the, the creative of, of scripted for a reason. I should stay in my life. I would have been so thrilled to walk into that room. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, at any time we ever heard of what was going on over there, you know, it was just, I mean, and we, you know, we never did a movie that had this kind of machine or, or um, uh, of course, merchandising opportunities or anything. But I mean, that was always super fun for us to, you know, see pictures of what they were going to build and make and have and do. And it was crazy. When I can't imagine that they made enough merchandise, right? That's right. In the first year, I don't think they knew how successful it was going to be. I think most of the marketing, again, because of the parallel IP had to come only on Disney Channel. I don't think there was much um, stuff on like ABC or any of the sister networks. So at a time where people were switching over to streaming networks, I think across the board on any linear network like at Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, all those kids networks, the ratings were going down. So if you're only advertising your movie on your own network, I think the assumption is it's going to be harder to get eyeballs to it. And so I don't think people were ready for the success. I don't think anybody expected it to be as successful as it was right out of the gate. And I remember having to beg, maybe like in September of whatever year it came out, 2015, for a co- an Eevee costume that I needed for like a friend's daughter, like begging for it because you could go, you couldn't get them right, anywhere. Right, right. And they were going on eBay for like two or three or four hundred dollars, which is crazy because they cost like fifteen twenty dollars. And then part of it has like, man. I can get like half a week's paycheck just selling this thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was crazy in that first year. I don't think anyone would have imagined it would have sold all of that, the books that were coming out. But I just remember being in the Disney store, and that's how you know you've done something special. And you look at that little kiosk, which was, I think, right in front at the Disney store, and there were just kids swarming around the Descendants um, booth of in that little kiosk. And I was like, wow, I guess people recognize it. Yeah. And then I think you stayed home on Halloween. And had Nikita over. Had, a, uh, you know, um, this was then an executive who came in. Because Corey then at some point 
a little bit had to share with someone who came in on the on the movie side because he was series and he was super busy with series and so this lovely executive named Nikita came in and she came over to my house on Halloween and maybe Sarah did I'm not sure if she did and we just watched the Evie and Mal's come up to our door and it was fantastic I mean you know and Sarah and I were joking like when Runaway Bride was out we did not have anyone coming in you know (laughs) Julia Roberts (laughs) outfit you know I mean that it was just sort of like well that's an impact of a whole other kind you know it really is it was fantastic I mean that must have felt like validation for everything you've ever done it did it did it felt uh yeah I mean it felt like oh there's a cultural I don't know if that's too strong but like there's a cultural impact not a huge strong one but there was also a strong message in the movie and and to hear the kids in the focus group being able to identify it and talk about it and to get and see fan mail and what it's meant to people it, that's all had you know been a unique and new experience for us and been pretty special well and as challenging as working with this level of ip was and is uh and you know obviously all the challenges of corporate synergy and all that this sounds like this is one of the most positive versions of this story, at least the payoff, Yeah, you know, it doesn't typically go this way. I mean, do you find in your, you know, in your career, you've, I mean, you mentioned, obviously we're talking about, you know, Descendants right now, but you mentioned Starter Wife based on a book. You also mentioned Runaway Bride. I'm staring at the poster right here. Not IP. Like, do you feel like just where the tide is turning now that we're in such an IP driven world? Do you think that, that this could have happened had it not been a part of this kind of machine? Do you, or do you even think that you could just wholly create new characters like that anymore? Some Is that opportunity? Cer- well, some people certainly do. I, you know, I, I do know, you know, I've had the experience where I had a pitch idea and they say, can you find an article to yeah. support it? And I want to say, but I thought of it, you know, like, <laughs> you know, why, why do I have to see if anyone in New York Times has talked about this phenomenon for that to lend it legitimacy? But so, yes, I, I mean, certainly IP has become, you know, driving more. Yeah, it's it's uh, I we I deal with that regularly and it drives me crazy for exactly what she's saying is like now you need another writer to write something for the writer to validate that it's a good idea and that's strange especially someone who's been doing it for so long if they have an idea that really sparks them and oftentimes it's personal too they shouldn't have to find an article and i think it's come to the point where people are reverse engineering articles where they they come up with this phenomenon no there isn't an article and then they'll go to their friends and say go write a you know one page expose and they'll get it thrown into glamour magazine and go oh look what i found happens all the time people don't realize that but but that's the way also from a producing standpoint, oftentimes you now can't attract writers without it because they feel that their show will never get picked up if it's not based on IP. So it's actually had a ripple effect where if you don't have IP as a producer, a lot of writers won't be interested. And in, in then you are sort of necessitated and you might even have a great idea and you now have to reverse engineer it. You get that reverse engineered IP, give it to a writer, you go out with it and that's how you get a show. Which is kind of a crazy way of developing because ultimately, hopefully, writers are creative enough to come up with their own ideas yeah. in general. I remember there was a t- uh, there was a uh, a pilot that we came up with, and it was like we didn't go out with it until we said, you know what, it's like uh, you know, dangerous liaisons, you know, or something. So then we kind of tried to make it a little more, you know, the modern day winery world, you mm-hmm. know, but tried to make it more because we had put in a bet 
to to build it and just to and to just drop the name, which and fortunately, you know, is not something we had to worry about optioning in any way. But at least it had a a hook like aha, a modern day takes place right. in Napa Valley, you know. Dangerously liaisons. By the way, is that on the air? No, it is not. I'm saying good excuse. Good excuse to go on a wine oh, trip. It out. was the best wine trip. Ever. No, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Do you think uh, that's just because of a lack of imagination on the part of the executives or you know studios? Do you think it's just because they're so overwhelmed and and worried about marketing dollars? Why do you think we're in this kind of moment in time right now? I think a proven track record in their minds means there's a higher likelihood of success. And to some extent, that might be true. If you look at a lot of things that are hit shows, whether it's, you know, my company does Lethal Weapon, you know, I just saw Hawaii Five-0 got renewed for its 10th season today. Like a lot of them are either based on a book or an old television show. It's tried and true. It's easier to bet on something that was already a success. You know, it's easier to bet on a writer that's already had success because you know they've done it before as opposed to a baby writer who might be a very good writer but I don't know anything about them and they've never had to develop before. So I certainly understand the logic of it. How it um, evolved into you have to have IP for an idea you came up with, that's more recent. I mean, that's more in the last like five years. And I think that's probably because a lot of old titles were getting used. And now the next iteration is, okay, we're out of titles of old TV shows that are getting rebooted. Now what's the next best thing? Oh, go find a book that we can then use the title of and do it sure or our definition of old is is getting a little crazy i mean yeah. american idol has been rebooted i think it was off the air for two years right yeah. yeah you know you can't even miss things yet but you know beyond all that you talk about you go to the writers that you know you obviously did that but you know josie you and sarah started off doing romantic comedies mm-hmm. and here you are now making you know kids live action but musical it's a, it's a different kind of category however and i don't think this is what made you come to us. Sarah and I did two really interesting years at uh, um, Disney Feature Animation. And we came on to write a project where they were they were going to try a new, a new thing of having screenwriters write a, an animated feature instead of it being created wholly by the storyboard people. And um, it was a little bit, you know, stepping on toes. And so it was a little awkward, but they essentially hired us and we were working in the building with the Mickey Sorcerer's hat and everything. And we came on and it was a for a four-week deal to you know write something, but to be in there working with the storyboarders and the director of it and all of that. And it w- <laughs> and they kept us on for two years. And we went from project to project to project. In fact, we wrote the first 45, I kid you not, drafts of Tangled. You know, I mean, because, and it was called Rapunzel Unbraided at the time. But then ours got totally tossed and they, you know, and we were gone by then. But but because of that, we actually knew a lot about the Disney ethos and, you know, and what you could do and what you can do. I mean, we, 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 we had some familiarity. I don't know if that had anything to do with getting this job. No, just that you knew me. <laughs> well, they helped us. And, by and I way, liked your writing. I had yeah. obviously read, while I had so much time in my hands when I was their assistant, of course, I read all the scripts. And, you know, when you create a show, it clearly, Star Wife was based off a piece of IP, but the book is nothing. I mean, sort of some of that story's there, but like the voices are what they created. And I would say, like, the mark of a great script is when you can cover up anybody's name and you know exactly who's talking. And when you read their scripts, it was very clear where the voice was. There was a very clear drive to the story. And so it's strange to me that 
over the course of time, and I've seen it with other execs, that people pitch you what the story should be because you hired the writer and hopefully they have great ideas, but you hired them because you've read their scripts and you know they they know how to develop in, in great characters and interesting entanglements and stories that push forward and have a thrust to them. Um, and that's what I always loved about Sarah and Josie. I mean, I love them as people, but I still have to do what's best for the company when I'm on the job. So I wouldn't have hired them unless I thought they were great. But did you have to do any sort of tap dancing? No, or? I think it was well known that they were they were you know successful writers and had done a lot of big things, and they were a get for the company. Right. So regardless, your tap dancing had to do was for them. <laughs> yeah. Are you a good dancer? Definitely not. Well, I'm clearly definitely good yes. enough. Good <laughs> enough. Oh, no, definitely yes. Definitely yes. And 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 we, you know, one thing we knew about Corey, and we were absolutely right, is that it didn't matter where he was in the pecking order, but that he would be like a, such a, you know, fierce uh, advocate if if there were problems, and you know, an intermediary, and he was. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was pretty awesome. In fact, I mean, we didn't originally have a producer credit in our original deal. And Corey went and he said, you know, that, you know, every step of the way. And, you know, he, he went and basically convinced the head of the company, you know, that even though it wasn't a precedent, that this was already precedent breaking and that we deserved it and we got it. And then on the next two, we were EPs. So. And what was your title at the time? When I first started, I think I was manager of development. I was the lowest level executive you could have there. And um, shortly, I think by the time Descent is aired, I was up till I'd come up a director or executive director with the second yeah. one. But yeah. But I, I think that's a great you know message for anyone out there listening that is starting out in their career and maybe not in a super high senior level yet. You can affect change. And maybe that is changing a bit with all the corporate, you know, kind of just moving and shaking and mergers and a lot of that power is being taken away. But as a manager of development, you can have a major hand in a... And not only that, but you you can get the loyalty, you know, like he imprinted on us and we imprinted on him. You know, I mean, it, it felt like we were in it together and we, we, we always knew that Corey was being 100% straight with us mm-hmm. and that he would... And that he he wasn't going to play politics. He, he he was going to really be honest. I mean, I you know you're our favorite executive. I mean that you, that you were going to just not worry more about how you were going to position yourself. And, you know, but by fighting for your talent, then you know, really in some ways, I think that's the best thing an executive can do. Because I would follow Corey anywhere. You know, so it would be. Yeah. So, in fact, oh, is there anything at your place? Well, I was saying is that it was, it's always the hard, the biggest challenge you have when you work with writers. I still face this. There's writers I've worked with that I love, and sometimes you have a piece of IP, and you don't know if they're going to respond to it. And you have a timeline in TV, you know, and on on my side. And so sometimes you have to give a project to three or four different writers at once, and you get embarrassed of riches if all four of them want to do it and you're torn and they're all friends with you and so one of my biggest fears when I was doing with Sarah and Josie was not that piece of it but but if I give a bad note will they still respect me at the end of the day or will they be mad because when you get bad notes it's frustrating is your vision um, they work really hard on it but I knew I always like because I had this relationship with them it was easy to be honestly like look I don't think this works I actually back somebody else's note on it, and this is why I don't think it works. And here's my pitch for what it is. It might be wrong. 
And oftentimes I was wrong and they go, yeah, that's not the way we're going to do it. But I hear what you're saying and they would make it better. Sometimes it would take a couple days for them to think about it and, and say whether or not they agreed with me. Sometimes they did disagree with me and they kept the script as it was and they were right about keeping the script the way it was. And so I think the best execs trust their creators. And hopefully when you're hiring a, a writer, you believed in them enough to be able to create something. Otherwise, why are you in business with them? And so I've always run my career by if I hire the right people, I shouldn't have to do that much, which is a strange thing to say as an executive. But if you hire right, you shouldn't be rewriting the script for them verbally or otherwise. You know, and I've heard it's funny because that reminds me and I can't remember who, but I've heard different directors say the same thing that my job is casting. And if I cast it right, yeah. you know, it, uh, you know. I mean, that, that the movie, I know I've got my movie. Right. One, hopefully the executive works at a company that allows him or her, her to, to empower the writers. And unfortunately, I know that's not always the case, but certainly in this situation, it sounds like it was. It, so. it, it, it was. It or, was. And I hopefully mean, still is. No, and I mean, uh, you know, and even when there's, when there's chafing and disagreements, I, I certainly, uh, I knew how important the project was to the whole network and that you know even if there were elements that made the development hard in 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 part it was because it was so important and they had so much intention of of going big with it you know of making it and and getting Kenny Ortega and now and now we're we're doing musical numbers and now the budget is creeping up again because of that and you know and things like that and I don't mean creeping you know I mean so that they were, they were so behind it that you know that um y- you know you understand you understand when there's that much pressure that it can be a little crazy and everybody's just feels the need to get everything right you know and and along the journey look there's lots of bumps in the road when you're trying to make any piece of content, TV, movies, there's also lots of cooks in the kitchen, everybody from the many development execs to the marketing team to the head of the studio to the head of CEO of the company. And they all have different levels of input in it that can um, throw a little bit of a, 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 a curveball to you and you have to be able to roll with it. But at the end of the road, if you've done everything right and everything comes in the line, like the best moment for me actually wasn't even seeing the movie, although obviously that was pleasurable. It was actually watching Sarah and Josie watch the movie <laughs> because for all intents and purposes, they didn't have to do it. They had, they had a big career in, in you know, very sexy networks and had their choice of projects. And they chose this one and you saw the joy they had. And I remember we were negotiating, we were on set of the first movie and I think we were getting ready to make the deal for the second one. And I can say this now since the deal was made. But the times I'm like, I'm like, Josie, we're still arguing over money. She's like, yeah, don't tell them this, but it doesn't matter what it is. I'm still doing the second movie. <laughs> you can tell them now. You can tell them and now. And guess what? It's, it's like they knew that. It's like they knew that. It's like they knew that. They didn't pay her a penny more. But yeah, there's something fun about watching the excitement. I remember when she was doing the Halloween, you know, just sitting at her house with Nikita and watching the kids come in. And that shows you how invested a writer is. It wasn't, I'm sure it wasn't the project that she was making the most money on at the time, but it was probably the one I could say, it, she, maybe the one that's most meaningful to you at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah, and, and, um, and certainly uh, I, I get more and more um, invested in kids. You know, I mean, like Starter Wife was great because it was about a woman reinventing herself after a marriage, which is cool. I mean, after a divorce, which is great and meaningful. And but but really to 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 talk about 
kids and choices they can make and being true to themselves and you can you can even if you start off with one kind of background you can choose your own path and fix it you know these things are so so basically so important so wonderful and I I volunteer with teen girls you know and many of them have seen the movies even if teens and then what it means to them and 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 so I guess it, it does feel like the most important thing I've ever done to me you know and and it's so professionally good for sure, of course, <laughs> of course. So, well, let's uh, let's get to the advice piece of all this. Not that you haven't just given a bunch of great advice, but there is one question that I ask all my guests, which is advice to their younger self. And you know, Corey, I knew you when you were younger. Oh gosh, uh, yeah. Corey is still his younger <laughs> self. <laughs> still my younger self. <laughs> you know, Josie, you knew me when I was and younger. I, I know. And you know, it's uh, I guess if you know, twenty-five-year-old Corey. What advice would you would you give him? You know, I'm sure not everything you've done along the way has been perfect, but you've made a great career. I remember, sorry, I'm going to share the story I always share when I when I see you. You, um, you know, you messed up with the three hole punch. You know, oh my gosh, yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> yeah, you still so is that your advice that? for yourself? Yeah. yeah. I remember so, no you know, Noah told me I remember I used to do three hole. This probably probably did this to Josie too, but I was a three hole punch and like. The first two uh, holes were fine, but the third one got cut off. And Noah came, this is when I was his intern, Noah came up because, listen, like, it kind of has to be perfect. You can't just, because I would just jam it in the binder. I'm like, look, it fits. Like, it's not like it's going anywhere. But he made me three-hole punch it again. And the crazy thing is I have one skill set in life. I don't, neither of you know this. But I can now look at anybody's resume and look down it and within 15 seconds find an error in anybody's resume. Um, at Disney, they used to give me, like, 30 resumes just as a fun thing to do at lunch. And i just go, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> And uh, I now will not hire an assistant because I will go through it. And if I can't, if I find one error in your thing, I'm going to know that you probably didn't take enough care in the thing that sells you for you to represent me. I and think I'm going to, I think I'm going to cry with his OCD. I feel like I passed this on somehow. Yes, this has yeah. been passed on through generations. There are so many assistants that didn't get a job because of you now. God. Just so you know. Sorry, assistants. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. But yes, but it's okay. So beyond the OCD and the, and the perfection, and, and I do tell people you practice like you play, right? Here we are. You were a great intern, three hole punching aside. Yes. Right. You were clearly a great assistant, you know, I didn't kill your daughter driving her home from school. You know, I, I don't even think I sped. Right there, you go. But these relationships, you don't realize. I know, I know. I'm so. I, I was so uh, thrilled because you know when you reached out and, and and asked me to do this, and I said, "Are you getting Corey Marsh? Do you know him?" Yes, he interned for me. It was just like, oh my goodness, everybody knew everybody when they were twenty. You know, it's really, you know, it's very charming. Very it's remarkable, charming. you know, how that works. So yeah. for anyone coming to town. That person that you're working with may be your... And by the way, you know, uh, I mean, as, as I was just saying before, you, even though you were a young exec, you know, our loyalty was to you. I mean, I think it's important for people who, no matter where they are, even if they're at the top of their game, you know, to know that, it, honestly, it's the Corys of yesterday that are in a position to hire me today. It's like, I, I, you know, we took a thorn out of his paw when we said, yes, we'll do Descendants. Or maybe when we said, yes, you can stay our assistant, even though you won't pick up the Coke cans. But Diet Coke cans? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so, you know, it volleys back and forth. And then he said, then he came to us with this cool project. 
he did us a favor. We did him a favor by saying, yes, you know, he looked good. We look good. We got a great franchise. He got a great franchise that he helped create, yeah. you know, and, uh, and now, and now who knows? And that's, I think kind of the, the, the two pieces of advice. First off, you just never know on things like if you had asked me eight years ago, whether the writers who I was the assistant to would be writing a billion dollar franchise eight years later that many people around the world recognize, I would have said, you're crazy. And I would have been thrilled to have a franchise. The hardest thing is once you have a franchise like that, you start to question, was that just lightning in a bottle for me? And like, what do you do with your career? And at that time, I think I was like 31 or 32. And I was like, I'm never going to repeat this. And I got, I got down on myself. I was like, I I don't know how I'm ever going to do this again. I'll never get promoted again. I should leave the business, which is crazy to think because when you make a hit, you're lucky if you get one of those. And there are so many people that went into it. So it's not just my hit, but so many people are involved in it to get a hit. But I was the one saying to myself, I'll never repeat this again. I'll never feel as much joy as I do in this. And that's great, but also really bad because I have 30 more years, hopefully in my career left, not on Medicare yet. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Um, right. It was better for Sarah and me because it was after our 30 yeah, years. Yeah, it was after, after your 30 years. So, I mean, and then the lesson learned was maybe a year later, I did a show, Girl Meets World, which I had to really fight for because my favorite show and the reason I got into TV was Boy Meets World. And that brought me an equal amount of joy, a different type, because it was my childhood that I got to bring to a new generation. And you start to realize you're going to have these waves where, man, there are, there are days where I'm at work and I'm like, I'm never going to make another show. I know I've done it many times. I'm never going to find another show that's a hit. It was all luck. I'm an idiot. And then it will happen and be like, oh, I'm a genius. What was I thinking about? And that's the hardest thing. And then the second piece of advice actually jumps on what you, you said or builds on what you said, which was my first week in L.A., it's now been 17 years since then. Um, there was a writer, John Beck. I don't know if you know him. He was on a lot of Disney shows. I think he's on Fuller House now. And at the time, there were fax machines. No, None of you kids know that anymore. But um, that's how you got your resumes out to get your first assistant job. And he brought all the kids in my class. I went to Syracuse out to um, his little apartment and said, I'm going to teach you guys all how to get your first job. And there were 50 kids. I'm like, why is he doing this? He was a writer on the show. Like, he has time to do this? Wow, what a nice guy. And I remember I asked him, I go, why do you do this? He goes, because I never know when one day you guys might be in a position to hire me. Cut to 10 years later. Oh, no kidding. I hired John Beck in the show uh, Liv and Maddie came out of that, which is where Dove Cameron came from, which is how Dove Cameron then ended up on Descendants. So therein lies, don't ever forget where you started because you can be somebody's boss. And by the way, that means when you get higher up, they can be your boss too. And don't forget when somebody reaches out, somebody who has no influence or power at that time, um, you know, at one point could really influence your, your career. Well, and also, you know, there is no straight trajectory because everybody's career ebbs and flows. So it's, it, it really can be, you know, hand over hand, you know, that where someone's in a position to help another person. It's not just a matter of age and where, you know, but, but there is a lot of it, you know, jobs change and yeah. Yeah. Well, you told me something many years ago, Josie, oh. which was, and I've, I've oft repeated this, third act problems are first and second yeah. act problems. But the flip side of that is third act successes are first and second act successes. There you go. And it sounds like... You're speaking story- metaphorically. Too. There you go. I'm like a fortune cookie now. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, you know, I really think that that's true, certainly of writing, but of life and everything. Yeah. And when you do the right thing early on, that pays off, you know, for 
for no other reason than just the joy of doing the right thing. But I do think that it just, you know, it gives and it self-perpetuates. And boy, here's a piece of advice. I wouldn't tell my 25-year-old self because it wouldn't apply. Don't put anything in any email or any text you don't want on the front page of the LA Times or the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune. I mean, you know, I mean, the, 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 the consistency with which those mistakes still happen. And, and it's so easy to slide into it. But uh, boy, yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't have to worry about that with us. Do you have any advice for the... For the for, for my young self... Um, go on a game show and win a lot of money? Yeah, that helped. <laughs> that helped. Uh, you know, I played... I, I, I was lucky and I had fun and I, knock wood, you know, worked consistently. Uh, if I had a crystal ball, I would have liked to tell my 25-year-old self, this is going to work out and you don't have to be something other than a writer. I, it, that would have made me relax because it was always, you know, when I was supporting my family and it was always just like, oh my God, what am I going to do if I don't get another job? And you're still thinking of that in your 40s and even 50s, you know, and it's like, oh, do I, you don't know, do I have to, you know, make sure I'm ready to retire now? And it's just like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I would love to have known earlier, you're not going to have to do anything else. You get to do this as long as you want and you're going to do it until you're done. I think I need that motivational speech from you. I feel that every day. I'm not sure. Do I, do I need to be saving for retirement because in one year from now, I may never work in this business again? And you have to make peace with that, too, because if you don't, it will drive you crazy. I know. I mean, and I, I remember Sarah and I would say, like, it, you know, what are what is our next thing? And Sarah said, I'll work in a pet store. And it would like, oh, OK, I'll, I, I'm a good proofreader. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know we're, we we aimed we didn't aim high for our say, you know, so it's like, well, OK, great. So you'll be in a pet store. I'll be proofreading. Done. You can look at resumes. With I know. For, for Corey. I'll be Corey's <laughs> assistant. <laughs> oh, man. I would love to have that day. Uh, well, I will be there and we'll do a podcast about that uh, that new career change for both of you. So thank you so much. You bring a lot of joy to so many kids, including mine. Um, I, I asked you before the microphones went on, but you know, when are they going to age out of this? Oh, uh, well, I think they're aging out. They'll age out as Sarah and I do. It's like three, we're good after three. I think most yeah. kids who started with the first one will say, I'm good. I'm 13 now or I'm 15 now. I'm, yeah. like, I'm ready to go see. It's probably once you get into the 13, 14 and, yeah. and above. And a lot of them are, they have younger, younger brothers and sisters and watching. We'll, we'll watch it going, I don't want to watch this kid thing, but secretly. Well, yeah, and, and I will say with these girls that I work with, you know, there are 16, 17 year olds who are saying, oh, I just love it. I don't know. I don't have a younger sister, but I just, I just love this. Yeah. So who knows? Are we ever going to see Darth Vader's kids? Well, I guess we know oh, who his kids are, but you know right, 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 his, right. his other kids that we never met. Well, I, I, I'm, you're already out of my. I don't know when they. Oh, I know who his kids are. <laughs> I just remembered. <laughs> yours, right. Spoiler alert: Luke and Leia, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, got it. Amazing. Thank you all so much. Okay, thank thanks. you. It was fun. So there you have it: the real story of the Descendants. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thank you as well to our guests, Josanne McGibbon and Corey Marsh, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind. <laughs>